Hi. Hi. Yes, it's it's um it's thinking like a lawyer. It in is. fact, it is. In fact, you know what it is. I think I do. What I is think it? It's the 200th episode spectacular. Okay. Yes. Oh, yes. I'm so thanks so everybody. Thanks. Uh, I'm so glad you actually got the sound effects going. I, you know, I, I better thought, late yeah, than never. I thought I, I'd do that that yeah. for you. Yes, it's the two hundredth episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer, which uh, for those of you who've been with us from the beginning, you probably never thought we would see, but we have. <laughs> uh, I'm Joe Patrice from Above Law. That's Catherine Rubino from Above the Law. But we are also joined by Ellie Mistal, who was the original co-host of mine on Thinking Like a Lawyer. So welcome here. I go away for a couple of episodes and you guys give them the fucking soundboard again? Like, come on. I, I actually specifically requested it. So um, it was actually difficult. The, I think it gives some whimsy to the podcast. Because the old oh, the old soundboard on. stopped working with this new system. So we had to actually do some real heavy work uh, thanks to our folks at LTN who helped us work all that out. But uh, yeah, the Legal Talk Network got me some stuff that allows me to do sound effects again. So we're in good shape. I'm I'm quite excited about it. And they're not just depressing sounds, which is also a step in the right direction. Well, and that was the thing. The, well, the, that would... The default sound effects with this, Ellie, were like sad trombone, people crying. Like it was, like all the defaults <laughs> were horrid. So I've had to actually do some work. Yeah, he had to get some happy ones going. So between, uh, between all of the people on here today, we have been on every episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer in some capacity. Mostly just you. I've been on all and made a cameo appearance on the one that I wasn't. We're counting really on. it. Yeah, right. <laughs> By that laugh, and definitely Ellie remembers the one that I didn't do. It was the one with Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I had to come on and give a disclaimer <laughs> at the beginning of the episode <laughs> that I know we have an explicit tag, <laughs> but, but this, this is one's real worse. <laughs> <laughs> we are not joking when we say it's explicit. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess let's start this off. We'll have a bunch of generic conversation as well as talk about some things that are going on. But we'll start this off as we used to uh, in a feature that kind of we felt was more proprietarily Ellie. So it kind of departed yes, well, when he I left. I scream a lot less. Right. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, yeah. But we'll we'll start off with Ellie's grinding of gears. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, thanks. I like yeah. it. I just, I'm glad I know that I can blame Catherine for this. Main thing now. <laughs> that's that's going to be important later. Yeah. So 200th episode, I thought if I was going to grind some gears on the 200th episode, I should do it old school um, and go back to my roots, which is being pissed off about student debt. If you've been following the news, um, you've probably seen Joe Biden say in a CNN town hall that he is not going to make $50,000 of debt relief, federal debt relief happen, that he's only going to do $10,000, and that he doesn't want to risk giving money to people who went to Harvard and Yale and Penn. So as a person who went to Harvard, I feel like it is completely in my rights to say, Joe Biden, bite my ass. That is the dumbest way to think about the student debt problem. As we know, as many listeners of this show knows, debt knows no elitism. Debt is going to hit you hard whether you went to Harvard, could hit you hard whether you went to Harvard or whether you went to Tufts or whether you go to, you know, the Thomas Jefferson School of Diploma Mill, right? But what we specifically know is that the students who graduate from the more elite colleges and universities in this in this uh, world, um, and certainly in the most the more elite law schools in this world, tend to have less debt. 
And there are lots of reasons for that. One of that is that the elite schools have elite endowments and are simply able to be more generous with their grant money than smaller schools. Harvard, for instance, has a $40 billion endowment. If you actually look at the list of endowments in the world, it's like the Catholic Church, number one, (laughs) Harvard, number two. What kind of crazy list are you on where you're number two to the church, right? So Harvard is able to give a lot of grant money for colleges. If you if your family makes under $65,000 a year, Harvard makes it free. Just straight up, here's all the money, come to school, we're done here, right? It's the students at, and it's that classic thing, we see this in colleges and we see this all the time in law schools. It's that classic problem of the private school that is not quite elite, but charges elite dollars that really tends to slam people with student debt. It's they're paying for the very elite prices, but they're not getting the elite degree. They're not getting the elite job opportunities. They're not getting the elite grant money. So if you look, and I'm talking about just for colleges now, if you look at colleges, the school that right now, according to U.S. News, has the highest debt load of its graduates is Drexel. Yeah. In Philadelphia, where students are graduating with an average of over $50,000 worth of debt. Drexel, not Penn, not Princeton. Princeton is actually third lowest in terms of debt load for college graduates. Another endowment situation, I assume. I, I assume yeah. so. Probably from Southern, you know, plantation slavery people. But still, whatever. And, you know, money gets laundered over time. So anyway, the point here, the listeners of this show know this more than anybody. Biden is wrong. The framing of this issue is wrong. And I will accept arguments that maybe $50,000 of debt relief is too much. Maybe there's a a different economic, you know, leverage point that you want to pin it to as opposed to 50. Maybe the right number is 24. I don't know what the right number is. But saying that $50,000 is too much because... He doesn't want to give money to Harvard and Yale and Penn. That that's just that's just factually wrong. It's the wrong frame and it's creating a false choice between elites and hard scrabble students that does not exist when the debt collector comes calling. You know, I I tweeted about this when he made that statement that it it resembles in a lot of ways the anti-vaxxer logic, right? Like <sighs> I don't need it for my kids. My kids are healthy like other people. But he's saying, oh, we shouldn't be giving it to these people because I assume they're rich because they went to Harvard or whatever, which is seems to be his logic. But the problem is, much like a vaccine situation, the economic damage is that this debt exists at all, that there are people who can't afford things because they have it. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. If you inject $50,000 more into their lives they buy more things. And that's the point. Uh, It shouldn't be about picking people who are sickly. It's everybody kind of needs it for it to work. Exactly. It's a, it's economic yeah. stimulus on that. Yeah. Thing. There, it, so there, yeah. there are lots of ways that like you can look at it as just straight up economic stimulus. You're giving $50,000 to people who will use it to buy shit. Who will, yeah. aren't going to save it. They're going to use it to buy a house or groceries or whatever in between. Right. But there's also the social justice argument. The reason why $50,000 has been picked as the price point by the way, is because experts have figured out that $50,000 is about what you need to close the racial wealth gap and the racial disparity in student borrowing. So we know that black students, black graduates carry, when they graduate from college, about $74,000 more debt than white graduates, right? 
but that balloons to $25,000 more debt that, that triples by the time they're four years out of college. Why? Well, lots of reasons, interest obviously being one of them. But it's that thing where like, if you're white and you're getting a little bit of a better job and you're getting a little bit more on the dollar than comparative black graduates, that initial unfairness is going to spiral out of control when you add in student debt and student debt interest. And so $50,000 was picked as the number because experts told us that this would be the right pinch point to really address the racial wealth gap, right? Yeah. So again, if you've got a principled argument for why actually, no, you can address that problem with $30,000 or $15,000, I'm willing to listen to your argument. But but give me a principled argument. Don't give me this bull crap about, you know, well, we don't want to give money to the Winkleboss twins. Nobody's giving money to the Winkleboss twins because the Winkleboss twins didn't need debt to go yes. to college. Yeah, I exactly. Those people never took out debt anyway. Right. You know, it's an important issue and it's one that would allow, you know, this whole student debt thing. It's scary for folks because in a lot of cases, it's the first contract they've ever seen in their uh -huh. lives to sign to sign on to that. Um and there, and Catherine's, Catherine's making noises because, <laughs> hey, if you work with contracts and don't use contract tools, you're missing a lot. Save time, make more money, and do a better job for your clients with contract tools by Paper Software. Contract tools is the most powerful word add-in for working with contracts. Thousands of lawyers all over the world rely on contract tools every day for every kind of deal. Visit papersoftware.com to watch a demo and get a free trial. So it's interesting, too, that Ellie's kind of going back to his roots, yeah, uh, okay. sort of in his grinding of gears. I think it's really interesting. And, and it, since this is the 200th episode and we right. do have we do have lots of folks on, uh, on the podcast, I think it'd be really fun to talk about sort of what's changed since the beginning of thinking like a lawyer. Mm. So what has this been? Year four of the podcast, I believe. More? Four? Really? I, yeah, how long have we been doing this? We started this before Trump, I feel. Well, I think I, so. I, we pretty much are every week, and it's 52 weeks in a year. But we, we we're weren't every— we were, we were So I did the math that We were, we're, every, two we were every two weeks for most of the run of the show. Uh, so that's interesting. The, so, yeah, no, so now we just work harder? Good good news. Yeah, no. I mean, we, <laughs> March 12th— Put a woman on the show. You've got to make her work more. Isn't that just the rule? Don't worry. They're also still making me do my other podcast. <laughs> right. March 12th, March 12th, 2015. Yeah, so, thought, yeah. Oh, wow. So it'll be our six years in a couple of weeks. Six years. Okay. Yeah. We really started this near the Ides of March. That was, that was. Well, it, well on the 12th, but yeah. Well, so we, a few days before. Week yeah. of. Yeah. Week of the Ides. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what have been the big changes in the legal industry uh, over that course of time? Obviously, there was the Trump administration. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's the big one. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty well, big. One thing that I, that I, you know, one of the changes for me is that I've followed the legal industry less and less since <laughs> uh, in the last six years. Uh, so there's that. But certainly I think one of the one of the underreported aspects of the Trump era and what that did to the legal industry was that it made kind of pro bono work great again. <laughs> um, there, <laughs> there, there was some fantastic pro bono work done by big law firms. Mm -hmm. um, not Jones Day, obviously. They, they were, <laughs> you know, all, all the people to the left of Jones Day, let's say, really uh, uh, taking on uh, cases that you kind of couldn't have done without the kind of big law backbone kind of into it to really try to, in many ways, help some of the vulnerable people that were being targeted by 
mainly, you know, Trump's Justice Department, right? So, you know, it's not on the, I, I wouldn't put Mayor Brown's pro bono efforts on the level of, you know, the ACLU or, or, you know, actual, you know, social justice organizations. But, you know, when Mayor Brown kind of, I want to say single-handedly again, but, you know, takes a leading role in beating back the TPS determination to take a temporary protected status away from um, Haitians um, uh, sheltering here. Like, that. that's that's high-end, really val- socially valuable um, work uh, that, you know, just there wasn't as much of, you know, during the Obama years. So, you know, I think that pro bono departments in general in big law deserve a lot of credit for their for their you know stepping up and and taking on regardless of political controversy, taking on you know worthwhile cases. Yeah, and I think the uh, kind of corollary to that is as they are getting more acclaim for th- for their work, is more firms are letting you bill more of your time and count those hours towards your bonus numbers at the end of the year. So it really shows that firms are not just committed for the headlines, but are are committed to actually paying their associates um for that work that they're doing, which is a good thing. Yeah, no, it, it definitely true. I am today. We're actually in a whole different topic uh i mean related but i've been following a big thing that's been going on on the the twitter sphere is this conversation about the hollywood foreign press association having uh being an entirely white institution and yet controlling the golden globes which is an important part of the industry they're claiming though in fairness probably not but whatever the point is um, important to some The point is, a a conversation came up about the differences between performative efforts Mm -hmm. and real efforts and that, you know, actual institutional power sharing and stuff like that is is not something that tends to be happening. Instead, there's, you know, a new hashtag. Uh, And that uh, and I, I understand that. And I think that's probably true. And I understand the idea now carrying that back to that conversation. I understand the idea of some people saying that these firms offering, you know, you can bill 200 hours to this you know, so long as you still get your other 2000 from uh, from, you know, getting Exxon's uh, help uh, is something that can feel performative. And I understand people who might be frustrated by that. But, you know, looking back since 2015, well, uh, it, it's good to have anything. And yeah, uh, <laughs> and I think that these things are, are not unrelated, but it's also important for the firm to say the hours you spend on pro bono matters still count towards your numbers requirements at the right. end of the year. It's very important, first of all, to make sure that folks at the firm are able to do to do that work. It also shows it also shows on the bottom level that this is something that the, the firm cares about and it's something that the firm is willing to actually have resources they dedicate towards it. It's not just, you know, individuals kind of researching in a library, but there's actual dollars that are are directly related to it that the firm is giving in order to make sure that the best representation for these pro bono matters is given. Yeah. Um and I and I do think that's I think big picture it doesn't, you know, I don't think any firm is gonna see, you know, some significant hurt to their pocketbook as a result of this, right? Oh no. But, Never. <laughs> hey, that's just a general truism. It has nothing to do with this topic. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, the pandemic was surprisingly good for big law, right? But, but Best year on record yeah, for some of the top firms. Yeah. Deeply disturbing. Uh, <laughs> deeply, deeply troubling. But, you know, it, it's a way to say, you know, you are not less than as a member of the firm, either as a partner, a member, or, you know, employee yeah. of the firm, because you've spent time on pro bono. Right. You don't treat it as a second-class citizen, a second-class kind of work. And I think that that is an important statement that actually translates to the culture of the law firm and kind of changes the, the way that folks experience life in the firm. 
Speaking of the pandemic being the best year for law firms, one of the things, and this is more Joe's part of the store, but one of the things I found interesting over the past, over the Trump era generally, Mm -hmm. is that while we did see a rebound in associate salaries, we did see some raises, we did see some larger bonus pools, um, and we did see the kind of general firms that cannot afford it following Corbett anyway. Yeah. I don't perceive that we saw the kind of salary boom cycle during this economic boom that we saw in like 2005, 2006, 2007, leading up to the crash, right? I don't perceive that the the, the numbers, that the largesse was quite as large, that there was more uh, restraint generally within big law in terms of pumping up associate salaries and pumping up associate bonuses, despite the relatively economic good times. And I bring that up for for two reasons. One, what the fuck? But two, potentially, was that a good thing? Will that make firms more resilient and have less need to lay off, you know, scores of associates when the next recession hits, which will hit at some point because these things are cyclical? What what do you guys think? Well, you know, it's interesting, that question, because, you know, how have law firms weathered previous economic downturns and come out stronger on the other side? LexisNexis Interaction has released an in-depth global research report confronting the 2020 downturn, lessons learned during previous economic crises. Download your free copy at interaction.com slash likealawyer to see tips, strategies, plans, and statistics from leaders who have been through this before and how they've reached success again. I do like the way Ellie just kind of served that ad read to you. It was amazing. <laughs> no, and we, and like, in, you know, that's the sort of that's the sort of give and take that co-hosting a show for like uh, five years can get, uh, and why you and I are still <laughs> a little bit off. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, but, but still, uh, cool, cool. but no, I, it's definitely true. Although, in I, I, there are two ways I would look at that. Well, on the one hand, there were raises a couple years ago, followed by cost of living adjustments to that raise a uh, year ago. So the firms had actually jumped up the the, the, the salaries salary. a little bit. Uh, Bonus already. pools aren't where they were. In Bonus tools have been stagnant. Yeah. Yes, but the actual base we had the. 2018 jump, right. and then in 2019, they jumped it again for cost of living purposes. So while we haven't seen the fact that firms are drowning in money and giving out raises, this, based on the 2020 year, they, they did do some stuff beforehand. The flip side is there's also some reason to be concerned that the revenue jump that we had this year is not sustainable uh, because a good a goodly portion of the revenue jump is that well, not even not revenue jump of the profitability jump, Profit jump is that you know they didn't travel anywhere. Right. Uh, you didn't fly anybody to Topeka to stay in a five star in the one five star hotel there to look at boxes or whatever. Like nobody went anywhere, uh, and that that pushed a lot. Uh, there was still legal work being done, but you didn't have to go to a hearing for six months, and so that pushed everything in. Uh, judges became more efficient because they had to, so whole things became cheaper. And yeah, I think that that. Knowing this is exactly the way that big law, by and large, has responded to it in terms of associate salary, because this year we saw, in addition to the normal bonus pool, the good chunk of the top firms also gave COVID appreciation bonuses, Mm -hmm. sort of the extra little bit of money that was like, you did a great job during a pandemic. And some people may not like us calling them COVID appreciation bonuses, but it's true. The money was being collected by the firm regardless. And the question is, who gets to share in it? Is it just the partners who get to take in that money and share it? 
or are they going to share it with with associates who are putting in the hours still, yeah. right? And we we saw for most firms either no hour requirement for the COVID bonus or a lower hour requirement than they do for their standard bonuses. Um, there are some exceptions, of course, but by and large, that's kind of what we saw. And the other thing that I think firms did very differently in 2020 than they have historically, particularly when you're talking about comparing it to 09 and 2010, is there were a lot fewer layoffs. Yeah. Layoffs happen. Stealth layoffs definitely happen. We've covered as many of those as we know about. But by and large, the firm said, why don't we cut salaries for a little while? Let's see how this pans out. We'll cut everyone's salary by 10%. We won't have to cut anybody from our payrolls. And then we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, and most of those firms gave back the money, you know, made, made make whole payments by the end of the year. Not all of them, but that yeah. was kind of the trend was... Let's not lay folks off because what happened after 2009 and after 2010, there was entire classes that were missing from the legal market, right? Trying to find a Mm mid-level associate in 2014 was impossible, right? Mm. Because half of them are gone. They were laid off. They found some other work. Maybe they're legal journalists. Who knows? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, they were just gone from the market. Yeah. So uh, I think that, and and a lot of firms had had knew that that was a problem. Saw that looking as a backward looking measure that they kind of reacted too quickly and cut too many folks in in those times. And the reaction was, why don't we just we don't we start with a pay cut, see what happens. Yeah. A lot of firms saw that was a problem. I always, you know, w- one thing that I I thought when we back when we started the show, I was still hopeful enough that at some point somebody would look into the collusion. That happens all the time throughout this industry. And it just, it just, nobody ever does, right? Like it's never, like nobody's ever going to care about that. That these firms are, are magically making decisions pretty much in lockstep for how this entire industry is going to go forward. And it's, we just, we act like it's a free market of all these individual, you know, capitalists making their own bestest. And it's just, yeah, whatever. Well, it's largely based on public information, though, right? Like, Kravath makes a decision. Everyone hears the decision, reacts to that public information. It's not like ahead of time they've gone into a room, decided what the decision right. is. That That is that is an antitrust violation, right? If they're right. all sitting in a room together and then announced all the same day, all the same hour, what we see is, you know, Kravath makes a decision, a day goes by, somebody responds immediately, somebody waits two days, three days. Yes, by the end of it, the same reaction is had, but it's based on publicly available information. I, mean, not I get that. And, and it's not an it's not an antitrust thing for that purpose. It's actually kind of kind of the definition of a free right. market, take information and whatever. But I think Ellie's point is that I don't care that Cravath and Davis Polk and Debevoise and Cleary all have the same bonuses. The issue, though, is that those folks kind of can push that next tier into yep. trouble. Mm-hmm. And we start seeing firms get into trouble. And we actually have a decent barometer of it because while a lot of firms did really great out of the recession, we have a few who we're seeing oh, they haven't done made whole payments yet. Oh, mm-hmm. they didn't bring back their furloughed people. And we're starting to see that there's a tier of law firms that is not able to keep up with the Jones Dayses, and <laughs> they're in trouble. And there is something to the way in which this market is so flat at the top, sure. and then everyone else feels the need to follow it that you know is, is the source of a lot of problems within the industry. Sure, I definitely think that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to sort of take away from, from that aspect. Yeah. <laughs> is there going to be any uh, like talent retribution for Jones Day? Is there going to be any... 
are students at law school still just like, oh, I, I, I OCI'd with Jones Day today. Interview went great. Is that still happening? Like, well, I'll say it depends on the law school. It, it does depend on the law school and everything. And I don't know, but I will say that we did publish that story. Uh, I don't believe it was our own survey. I think it was somebody else's. I can't remember. But the the brand loyalty survey mm-hmm. the, of in house counsel and the in house counsel. We do this every year. There's, there's a survey that somebody who escapes my. Yeah, maybe. Okay, but yeah, so I don't. Yeah. Anyway, don't but know. whoever does it uh, does a great job of it, uh, and they <laughs> find out from in-house counsel what law firms you trust. And for years, uh, Jones Day has either been one or two on that. They like really great brand loyalty among in-house people. And this year, they fell to. Did they fall ten. out of the top ten? I think they ten. may have fallen to ten. Yeah, I think. Uh, but that was the point where I started realizing, oh, there is going to be blowback. <laughs> There is going to be a group of people who go. I, I'm done with this. Uh, I can't stand the, can't stand the the drama. Basically, like <laughs> Jones Day, for all the crap we give them, uh, most of the work they do is just standard legal work. Mm-hmm. But that right, little bit right, that they right. do that is not is horrible drama that gets in the way of your ability to do the other kind of work. Sure. And we saw, you know, the Lincoln Project, Midas Touch, putting out advertisements not directed at Jones Day, directed at at uh, potential employees, right? People, talent pool, as well as, uh, you know, people who use Jones Day as their attorneys, right? It's not talking to Jones Day anymore. It's talking to the people who use Jones Day. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and we'll see if that has staying power, but it seems like it did something, at least in the short term. You know what? What? So here's a message for the attorneys out there. You passed the bar, joined a firm, or even built your own. Now, are you finding out you are doing more administration than actual law practice? Lexicon can help. Lexicon is a legal services and technology provider with over a decade of experience helping firms maximize billable hours. And until March 1st, get up to $1,500 off onboarding. Visit lexiconservices.com slash go to get started. It's going to be interesting to see what the fallout from all these things will be. So did you have another... uh, 20th anniversary, 20th anniversary. Wow, getting ahead of myself. 200th episode anniversary question there. Uh, I mean, uh, no, I had nothing in particular. I felt like I was stepping on you last time. So, uh, you no, know, you not at all. So, what should we talk about? Should we talk about, uh, everybody who listens to this show knows what Ellie's been up to? I don't think we need to get like, do, do you want to tell us what you've been up to? I think we should let him tell us what he's been up to, but give him a time limit. Otherwise, Fair this enough. will go yeah, for that's four good. hours, and yeah. that's probably well, When I was 16, I, I uh, no. <laughs> um, really, well, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful you'll have me back yeah, um, whenever, sometime this summer or early this fall, because I have a book coming out. Yay! Um, I actually, this weekend, finished the last uh, the fact check of the book. Um, it's called Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. So like for for normal people, I think the the elevator pitch is, you know, this is going to explain how to argue against Republicans and blah, blah, blah. But like for, for law people, it's like I looked at the Federal Society and I tried to explain why they suck. Like it's, <laughs> it's the whole the whole book is just originalists are wrong about this. They're wrong about this. Textualists are fucking wrong about this and this and th- so it's just it's just like 21 chapters of like, well, sorry, it's 20 chapters of how the Federal Society is wrong. And then one chapter of like, they're kind of right about this. Can you guess which chapter that is, Joe? You're going to talk about stupid land use issues. <laughs> it's the takings <laughs> chapter. But yeah. Like, <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I, I Republicans know. have a point on, on the takings. But I, it's 20 chapters. 
of shit posting the FedSoc and then one chapter of like butt takings. So yeah, so I that editing, I finished editing that. Um it's in the fall catalog. So I don't have a link for the pre-order, but when I do, I would like to come back and promote that. Yes. That's well, obviously. Uh we will we will have you that that's exciting news. Um how exciting Did you know that books are not Oh, huge, huge news, huge, exciting news. I should have hit that one before we got going, but, you know. A little late. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Did you know yeah. that books are not fact-checked? What? Like, the, the publisher doesn't pay for fact-checks. I mean, that makes sense. I've read several books that suggest that's true. <laughs> so I, I, I use the fact-checker. Uh, I paid out of my pocket for a fact-checker. for them. Mm. And, like, you know, the, the fact-checks that came back, they weren't, you know there weren't massive errors but there mm-hmm. were you know there were facts that were wrong because when you write an entire book you're gonna get things wrong you know and like little niggling things that like probably you know would really annoy a person who knew what they were talking about would make me look dumb like i kept like the entire book i say marbury madison decided in 1801 marbury madison decided in 1801 it was decided in 1803 it was you know, it was yeah. over and like i was like ah but like it would have like five times I would have looked like a freaking idiot, yeah. right? Just without the fact checker. So like fact checkers are I don't think people who are not in the media understand the like critical importance of fact checkers. And they're and they're it's an undervalued position that so many publications, and now I've learned book publishers, are just not paying for anymore. And it's 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 hard to understand why. Because it's very rare that a person gets a fact wrong that is the linchpin of their argument. When it happens, it's real embarrassing. Like Maureen Dowd kind of just forgetting um, that Geraldine Farrell <laughs> ran for <laughs> for vice president was In, in fairness, mo- almost all 50 states did too. Oh. <laughs> oh. But what happens more often is that there are factual issues that the author just, you know, in good faith kind of gets wrong throughout their argument that just weaken the entire argument and mm-hmm. make one feel that the thing wasn't research. And it's really not always on the author. It's just it's the publication that's supposed to, like, have your back sometimes to make sure that you don't sound like a lunatic. Um, yeah. And so few publications, you know, pay for that anymore, even in a print world where you actually have time to do this yeah right well in uh, like uh, having worked on a journal like the, the importance of fact checking I mean, that's most of what you do your first year on a journal and there, there's a value to fact checking but there's also the value of a good fact checker to say things like and i don't know if this ever came up but not just hey this was actually 1803 but also you say this point i think there's at least a couple other things i've read that make that point better and like it just offer that like a lot of what i was doing as a journal editor was getting into footnotes and then sending back to the professor here's all the things also here's like four other cases you should read just in case you might think these are better yeah. and that's hugely valuable that happens sometimes you know yeah. sometimes a good fact check will be you you say the majority holding and this is you know fact checking from person who doesn't have any legal training for me but it's like you say the majority holding is x but i read the majority holding and it seems like y and it's it's a little bit in the gray area between a fact and a, an opinion. Yeah. But like it's always good to like hear like to like basically hear your words read back to you. You know, do you really want to say that John Roberts said X when you could just quote what he said? Right. And it's a little bit different, right? And you could just do that and cost you nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so fact checking is invaluable. I paid for one out of pocket for this book. 
So I, I hope that helps the uh, some of the argument. Now, of course, so, she couldn't legally fact check me. So if I was right, just right, right, just uh, wrong yeah, about due process, we're just going to all have to live with that. But <laughs> so, so you paid this out of pocket. So was this like out of out of money that you were getting from the publisher, but you had to hand it, or was it money the publisher gave you? Or like, how do you keep track of all those things? And before you answer that, you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small firms track client funds down to the penny. Enjoy peace of mind with one-click reconciliation, automated transaction alerts, and real-time bank data. Visit trustnota.com legal to learn more. Terms and conditions may apply. That was, again, NOTA, powered by M&T Bank. My NOTA is named uh, Christine. <laughs> yeah, no, the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so for no, that's, that's my no. wife. My, yes. my, my wife handles that part of the store. The math part of the store. Does that, does that part of the business and most <laughs> most other parts. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, so... Um, okay, yeah. Well, Joe, you what do you think has changed most since 20-whatever when this started? I don't know. Have you learned any lessons about podcasting? Have I learned any two- lessons? Heavens no. No. Um, no I, I do think that a few things have changed. I agree with all the stuff that we've already suggested about the industry changing. I think that the law school world is changing, not necessarily uh, in a great way, in that I think that a lot of the lessons coming out of 2009 are being forgotten and people are flocking back to law schools, despite the fact that the number of jobs has not actually changed much. Uh, I hope... Applications are like way up. Yeah. That's another Trump effect. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a bit of that. Uh, but my my thing that I've been, obviously, for everyone who's listened and read for the last several months, know that my current cause is uh, bar exam reform and fixing that. And I would hope that there's some momentum for that. Uh, hope like the number of abuses that we've seen over the last year should be enough to get something rolling, but we'll see. I hear California might. Have you been following these Ellie's, how they're telling folks that they can't use the bathroom over a four-hour exam, and then they just, like, yeah. increase the length of the exam? Still yeah, they doubled it. Yeah. Just because it worked. It worked okay last time with only, like, a third of people being flagged for cheating when they didn't do anything. So that, let's double it. That's the, the, the California situation where they, one-third of folks were flagged for cheating is beyond preposterous. Flagged for cheating and told, told basically in order to show cause, like, we're not even going to investigate whether or not you were cheating. You have to prove to us you weren't. Especially when you know that the underlying technology targets people with yes. darker complexions. Yes, well, which is a huge number of that. What did they do to flag people for cheating? Uh, well, it doesn't necessarily say um, blinking too much. <laughs> well, yes, they, there's obviously yeah. the race issues, uh, and that's, that's a good part, but not a third of correct, applicants. Correct. Uh, because... We have a shortage of people of color who who who, uh, who go Gone to law school in yeah. this country. So it's clearly not that but uh, the whole problem. Blinking too much, losing eye contact Moving, with the camera, fidgeting, losing eye contact, or they think you've lost eye contact because of shadows. Uh, yeah, all of these things uh, register that. Yeah, no, it's been bad, and the hope is that this will result in some sort of a push to at least a different kind of exam that tests something that somebody actually needs to know to be a lawyer. And ideally, a world in which we crack down on diploma mill schools and say, you get to be a lawyer as soon as you have a law degree and put it back on the job of accrediting schools, Uh, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately, the last time we had an attempt to crack down on schools, those schools all hired uh, Paul Clement and started suing. So we need something (laughs) to get back to that. Hopefully, 
that's a thing that it's not so much a thing that's changed. I suppose other than the amount that I care about it has changed. Um, <laughs> it used to be a mild annoyance to me, and now it's something I think is actually a real tragedy. Yeah, and we talked last uh, the last episode of the podcast that some folks who were about to take the February exam had asked you for some words of encouragement. How'd that go? Yeah, I actually popped into that chat to give the pep talk. Could you, Ellie? People actually asked Joe for words of encouragement. Do they have they met him? I Apparently mean, obviously not. not. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so- You know, I I offered what I knew. Uh, There was a question came up about conflict of laws that I actually knew the answer to. So I offered that. Uh, But, you know, I just basically said, look, you're somebody asked you a trivia question and you answered it. What a goddamn surprise. Exactly. (laughs) Well, it's like, I mean, it's what they needed to know. My my point is, though, that the my encouragement was just recognize that this is not the bar exam that anyone else has ever taken. The kind of exam I took is is different in substance and form from the thing that you're being forced to do in front of a Zoom camera while it flags you for cheating. So, And half these folks in Texas haven't had power or heat right. for several yeah, Oh, yeah, they're making days, all weeks. of them take the test this week. Yeah. Even though they've had no heat for the weekend. Yeah, or power to yeah. actually be able to study the materials that are all available online. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been real bad. Cool, cool. I have I have a two hundredth episode question for you guys. Yes. So, and this kind of goes off goes off on my Jen's Day question, but do you perceive any kind of change over the years, and especially over the Trump era, any more kind of resilience to push back against the federal society and conservatives in general within the legal media? Because one of the things that I, I I feel strongly is that, you know, when we started, Joe, mm-hmm. we were two of the only people willing to really be out there in media kind of constantly criticizing the bullcrap that Republicans and conservatives do, right? We were we were some of the few people who weren't who were trying to talk about law and talk about legal issues, but not willing to play both sides, not yeah. willing to to play like, oh, but then but then the other advocate legitimately, like we we were willing to call non-credible arguments non-credible. Um, um sometimes to the face of people making those non-credible yeah. arguments. I feel like, especially near the end of the Trump, you know, experience. There was more of that in legal media. There was more kind of, you know, people saying like, what's going on with Amy Coney Barrett is wrong. It is hypocritical. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not fair given what you did, um, to Merrick Garland. More people willing to say that, you know, Trump's legal arguments for, at least for election fraud were, were, you know, patently ridiculous and should not be entertained. You know, Nina Totenberg yeah. was fighting her inner muse with that. Do you think that was a one off just for, you know, election fraud was particularly, you know, the big lie was particularly bad? Or do you see generally legal media kind of more willing to take on some of these really scurrilous and and I would argue unprincipled arguments that are consistently made by conservatives in the legal profession? I mean, I, I think it's probably a good news, bad news. Good news, yes, I think that there's going to be a lot of pushback to, against some of these fringe right theories. Bad news, it's just going to result in the creation of a new tier of FedSoc people that do get applauded. There's going to be more efforts to, and of course, we're going to listen to what, insert middling. George uh, Conway. Obviously, George Conway, although I feel as though George Conway is his own like animal at this point, because he's not even making substantive arguments against these people now. He's just being funny. Uh, so he's just making <laughs> jokes. But these mid-tier FedSoc people who are just as committed to all the awful stuff that we talked about in the past, but 
who will get a newfound badge of respect by just not doing the craziest stuff, uh, mm-hmm. which you know, so the, it's good that we found a, a we found the limit. Uh, it's bad that it's going to just reentrench itself in a different way. I mean, mm. the other part of that, which is not kind of specific to um, the legal media or lawyers, but is that FedSoc as an entity is much more of a well of a known quantity now, right? Like your average non lawyer is familiar with FedSoc, have heard that term. You can say, oh, well, FedSoc, blah, at a cocktail party that's not just lawyers, and people have some basis of what you're talking about. And I think that that, mm. is, that is a material hey, change. What, one, L, one L's these days won't be fooled by free pizza. <laughs> They're like, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> you can't buy me with pepperoni. <laughs> That, look, to... that's important because because one of the reasons why the FedSoc has been so effective is that they operate generally in secret. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they've been oper- able to operate without transparency to the point where, like, even other Democrat senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee aren't always fully aware of what's actually happening, right? Like, you know, the, the distance – and you know, I tried to insert myself into this fight – the distance between what uh, Sheldon Whitehouse understands – about the Republican judiciary machine versus what a Dianne Feinstein or Dick Durbin is either willing to understand or admit to about the Republican judiciary machine. There are yards between them, right? And I feel like if nothing else, the Trump era has forced, you know, the Dick Durbins of the world at least to understand better and more deeply just what the Vetsock is up to. I, I still, you know, think Sheldon Whitehouse should have had his job, but you know, whatever. Fair enough. Well, looks like we've been going for a bit. You know, I hate yeah. to bring the 200th episode to an end. Because well, it is, is a fun. spectacular. It is a spectacular. It has been. Um, yeah, it's a spectacular. There you go. You, 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 you lined him up for that that time. I, I tried. You and made, I, that's I, your fault. You, but, I but like it. But you get. I, I enjoy the sound effects. I just don't get how you get angry at me because I don't hit things instantly. I'm like, you know that I can't actually have both those windows open at once. I have to. First of all, I don't know that. Second of all. <laughs> 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 See, it's so good when you do them right that I just I'm pushing you to be better. Mm. That's my pledge for the next 200 episodes to make no. Joe better. <laughs> We think we're getting. We think we're getting two hundred more. I mean, you know, we're going every week, so it's only going to take us four years. Yeah, it's it's going to be a lot easier now that I'm here grinding. (laughs) I don't grind years; I just grind episodes. Amazing! I love it. I love it. She's not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the lie? Where's the lie? (laughs) Yeah. So excellent. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to us. I think Joe always tries to like bring it back. He's got some ad read up his sleeve or something going on over there. And he's just Just keep it on the rails. Just keep it (laughs) off. (laughs) That's his only job. That's Joe's pledge for the next 200 episodes. I will keep it on the rails. That's all I got. (laughs) Yep. And broke it already. Um, <laughs> no, but so thanks everybody for listening uh, to both this episode and the previous 199, which uh, I'm sure you can go back and listen through the archives if you feel like it. But we will uh, obviously be back in the future. You should be checking out Ellie's work over at The Nation as well as he's on TV 
in a ubiquitous way, as well as uh, he has a book coming out, which we will talk more about when that happens. You should be reading Above the Law, as always. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One, the numeral one. It's at L-E-N-Y-C. And you should be listening to The Jabot, which is Catherine's other podcast. You can listen to Legal Tech Week, the Legal Tech Journalist Roundtable that I'm also on. You can check out the rest of the offerings of the Legal Talk Network. And... Thanks to the sponsors, Contract Tools, Lexicon, Notice Powered by M&T Bank, and LexisNexis Interaction, and peace. Yeah, there you go.